As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. I will introduce... Philip Lane, he is the chief economist at the ECB, and I want to make clear, particularly to our American audience, there is no equivalent at the Fed. With the inaugural chief economist, Otmar Ising of Germany, this is considered a key position in global economics. Philip Lane, I want to go back to a paper you did from Trinity over to Harvard years ago with a guy named Mankiw. And you and Greg Mankiw did a paper on economics and the scientists and engineering of it all. Do we throw the textbooks out now? Does the science and does the engineering of modern economics work given this moment? So I'm familiar with that, with that paper, but I cannot take credit. I think it might have been Greg Mankiw and maybe Ricardo Reese at the London School of Economics. But the basic question is still very relevant. And um, absolutely, in central banking, um, uh, it's a blend of, of course, respecting uh, the science of the textbook, uh, while also understanding that we live in a real world where we have to you know, uh, understand the actual data arriving and to filter out and, and come up with policies that, that work in the real world, not just in the uh, textbook version. Well, let's talk about the real world and the data this morning. Philip, great to have you with us on the program, sir, by the way. The rising core inflation in the Eurozone, more bad news, comes in at 3.5%. I want to start with how worried you are about the second round effects here and how quickly you think we should react to that pressure. So clearly the whole economy, all sectors, so core, non-core, the whole economy has to adjust uh, to essentially three factors in Europe. One is the very large uh, increase in energy prices. Uh, which, of course, uh, matters directly, but also matters indirectly because every sector uh, uses energy. So every, every business uh, which uses energy as an input, including in the services sector, just think about hotels, restaurants, transportation, that energy shock will show up everywhere. A, a second factor is the uh, pandemic, uh, and that's working uh, through different channels. Uh, as you know now, with, with the uh, new, renewed wave of lockdowns in China, we have new uh, bottlenecks. We, we also in Europe have the reopening of the economy uh, this winter, uh, including the early weeks of Q1, uh, which we've just seen. Uh, a lot of sectors were still locked down, which basically meant that there was a, a lack of activity. And also, honestly, uh, in, in a world where uh, of that, uh, less pricing pressure. 
and then as we, we reopen those sectors, uh, those sectors are also going to normalise prices. Uh, and then the third element is, is the war. And the war, uh, when we're talking about, uh, started, as you know, in, in late February. Uh, and uh, this is a, a source of great uncertainty for the European economy. Of course, it interacts with, with, the, uh, uh, with the energy uh, shock. It interacts with bottlenecks, but it also has a direct effect in terms of uh, anyone trying to kind of uh, form their outlook uh, for, for Europe uh, for the coming months and years. Uh, how the war plays out in the coming weeks and months is, is really uh, the, the most important topic. Well, let's talk about how that informs your sequencing. The latest minutes published by the ECB, let's call them the accounts the way you like us to, showed you viewed the call for a rate hike sometime after the end of asset purchases. I understand from your point of view, you want to disentangle the rate hikes from asset purchases. I get all of that. You've suggested recently, Philip, that that would give the governing council this extra space. Do you think you still need that extra space, given everything you've just said and given the data this morning? So, so I suppose, let me be clear uh, along a few dimensions of that. Uh, the, 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 the idea is uh, to have an option. Uh, so that option is an option that, that could be invoked uh, quickly. Uh, as President Lagarde has said, I think, in the press conferences, uh, it covers a, a, you know, a range at the long end from a few months uh, to the short end, you know, as, you know, uh, of, of, you know, even a week, I think she, she mentioned that at the short end. So it's an option. It's not a, it's not a fixed uh, window of time. Uh, and essentially, uh, here we are at the end of April. Uh, we're nearly six weeks, six weeks, I think, from yesterday to the June meeting. Uh, and after that, we have another number of weeks uh, to the next meeting in July and, and so on. So uh, I appreciate uh, th those who are trying to uh, uh, form uh, market judgments uh, like predictions. I'm much more focused on, on the process. Uh, we, we, we need to take into account the data we've seen today. Yeah. Uh, we need to take into account the, uh, both, both on GDP uh, and on inflation. Uh, we're, in, we're basically, honestly, in the middle of, of uh, trying, of the staff are working on the projections that will inform the June meeting. And, and we, we have a clear uh, sequencing uh, if, in terms of policy making, but also in terms of uh, the meetings we have and the information we have. So I don't really want to, to run ahead of that sequence. Philip, you mentioned market pricing. Do you think it adequately reflects right now the way you're communicating? Is that of any interest to you whatsoever? So, I mean, I think uh, those involved in the market and, and policymakers are essentially uh, uh, confronted with a number of factors. Uh, number one, uh, I think you said earlier on in, in the commentary, uh, our, our current uh, uh, policies, um, our interest rate policies, were developed at a time when the imperative was to try and tackle inflation that was persistently below our 2% target. So we've been basically saying all year long uh, that, that on a step-by-step -step basis uh, uh, and s s conditional on, on this outlook where we do think um, w we are not returning to that low inflation trap um, of, of normalising uh, interest rate policy. So, so the interest rate policy will move. Uh, the, you know, the question of, I know of, of interest at, at to everyone is uh, exactly uh, w when that, that will start. And, you know, we essentially have been uh, assessing in our recent meetings that we should be data dependent uh, to respect the uncertainty we face. And, uh, you know, we Philip, know... with all due respect, uh, can I just that, jump in, you know, sir? I often hear this week, from central bankers that please. you'll be data dependent. 
and then I see the data change, and then I don't see anything you say that changes whatsoever. I mean, I asked the well, question earlier on about what you said about a month ago relative to what the data says now about whether you still need that extra space be between ending rate purchases and rate hikes, okay, so, so, and then so you say me, we're data dependent uh, still. Sure, jump back in. Let, let, let me challenge this. Just look at, at the very large uh, changes in the ECB's uh, monetary stance uh, since, since uh, December. So in December, you know, we took decisions which uh, you know, were, not, were not universally uh, uh, praised at the time to, to have a, a big scaling down of asset purchases, including through the, ending, uh, the announced end of the, of the PEP uh, purchases at the end of March. So in terms of uh, step one, uh, scaling down the, the monthly volume of purchases, uh, a lot has already happened. Uh, step two of, of not only going uh, uh, ending the PEP, but talking about uh, concluding net purchases under the APP. Uh, you know, we, we've signaled a strong expectation um, that this, this, is, this is coming up. And then after that sequence, it's, it's the issue about uh, moving interest rates. And, you know, the market um, um, and, and for ourselves, it, it, you know, it's, the story is not, you know, the issue about, uh, you know, are we going to move away from, from minus 0 0.5 for, for the deposit rate? Uh, the big issue, uh, which we do have to uh, still be data dependent about, is the scale and the timing of interest rate normalization. And, you know, we've just talked about the high uncertainty. Um, it's recurrent everywhere that, that, uh, that there are mixed dynamics in the euro area. In the near term, yes, inflation is very high, and that does carry its own risk of momentum. On the other hand, uh, the high uh, energy prices are eating into uh, uh, disposable incomes. It's reducing consumption. Uh, the war uh, you know, has a scope, especially you know, depending on how it goes, in, in terms of uh, uh, mapping into lower investment, lower consumption, uh, to confidence effects and extra pressure on energy. So I'm going to hold uh, to this perspective that, sure. that the, uh, a lot remains data dependent. But, 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 but I would emphasize, though, is uh, we're, we're, you know, I don't think you're hearing anyone saying that the, uh, the, the current uh, deposit rate of minus 0 0.5 is, is going to be, uh, remain there indefinitely. It's all about the, 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 the prudent and robust and durable way of having normalization. Looking at the move in the euro, it's been pretty brutal over the last month, Philip. Euro dollar's down about 4.5% on the month so far. You will, of course, tell me that this is not a policy target, but we can all agree it has possible implications for the medium-term outlook for price stability. With that in mind, Philip, are the latest developments problematic for you? The way, I mean, uh, I, I would think about it, I think I've always uh, 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 taken this view, is that the exchange rate is a very important uh, macroeconomic variable for Europe. The euro area is a big trading block. Uh, it's, uh, from a macro point of view, the exchange rate absolutely matters. So when, we are, when the staff now are working through the projections for June, uh, that, that currency depreciation will, will be an important factor shaping their projections. Um, and again, to emphasize, uh, it, it, you know, one channel is the mechanical effect on import prices. But when we think about investment, when we think about consumption, uh, uh, net exports for the euro area, it, it's, a, it's a big macro variable. 
and, and this move is, is significant. So uh, anyone looking at that and trying to think about the implications for monetary policy, uh, that will definitely be one trend along with every other trend that we need to think about, which will be integrated into an overall assessment in the, in the June uh, uh, forecast. Philip, how much does it affect your expectation for the potential for a recession in the Euro region? And I say this as ECB member Mattis Muller came out and said that uh, they saw that the chance of a recession in the Euro region was low. Do you agree? So uh, absolutely in our baseline, uh, let me point, point out uh, uh, two factors. One, uh, there's still a lot of momentum from, from the recovery from the pandemic. Um, that's true, especially when you think about year on year, because uh, this time last year, there was, you know, we were still uh, very far below uh, the 2019 level. Now, so, you know, when we think about the economy, that momentum is there. But it's not just about that kind of uh, base effect. Like, you know, the momentum, uh, we've just seen, uh, you know, a positive Q1, now, not very high, admittedly, but still positive. Uh, and the, we know uh, f from the uh, near-time uh, indicators for what's going on right now that there still seems to be uh, reasonable activity right now here at the end of April. Um, so, it, again, uh, I don't think it's, it's the most interesting way to, to, to kind of... Uh, frame the question because even if the economy continues to grow, compared to the pre-war uh, baseline, uh, you know, under all scenarios, uh, the, the path for output uh, is, is not going to be as high as we, as we were hoping before, before the war broke out. So uh, the, the basic analysis uh, applies regardless of whether uh, it, everything ends up being so strong uh, to, to put us into negative territory. But, but the, really, it's, it's not so much about what we know today. It's we all know the possible scenarios. We all know the possible scenarios well, about the intensification of, of the interruption of energy supplies uh, and other scenarios. Which could, which, and this is why at the ECB, uh, we've been uh, f you know, publishing scenarios. Yeah. We've been emphasizing we don't just look at the baseline, but also adverse and severe scenarios. Philip, uh, just to sort of uh, sum up, though, are you saying that the market is wrong because the market seems to increasingly be pricing in a recession in the euro region and pricing in that those scenarios look a lot more likely? Are you saying that the, the risk reward is perhaps a little less pessimistic from your perspective? No, I don't think, again, uh, I, I want to spend any time on commenting on that. What's true is the market, of course, has to fold in a significant uh, risk premium, uh, a risk premium on inflation, a risk premium on GDP. And there is a covariance factor there, uh, which, which is basically uh, the, the urge to, to kind of uh, look for protection uh, is going to be higher when, when you're confronted with the risk of higher inflation and lower output. Uh, and so uh, filtering out between uh, risk premia and what the market truly expects. Uh, of course, we, 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 we did that ourselves in understanding the data. Um, but that, but both forces, uh, risk management and kind of uh, true forecasts are obviously uh, influencing market pricing. Philip Lane of the ECB, the chief economist. Philip, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Deeply thoughtful stuff on a tricky moment for this European Central Bank. Philip, thank you. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. 
Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Tom Parcellio joins us now, truly expert within market economics in America on wage dynamics. Tom, you're the best guy to talk to about this right now. Is it a wage spiral? Yeah, you know, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to everyone looking at ECI because Powell mentioned it, but I, I don't know. It's a it's a quarterly number. I mean, there's monthly stuff in hand. We have a month. We have a new month. We have March in hand. We're going to get April data soon enough. I mean, look, if you're looking at wages and salaries, I think it's really interesting that the month on months actually continue to slow. And that's been going on for quite a number of months now. Again, make no mistake. I mean, we're looking at really high run rate here. But at the end of the day, you, I mean, it, you know, look, everyone wants it so fast, right? Like they just want it like one month. They want they want to wake up one day and they want like inflation back to, you know, 2 percent. This is not how it's going to work. Right? I mean, you have to look for like these sort of little shifts that are happening. And one of the, I think there's a couple of interesting shifts that are happening right now. One of them is wages and salaries are actually slowing down on a month on month basis again. Running at a high level, we get that, but uh, you got to look for these little shifts. I thought the beige book from last week, I thought that was really interesting too. I mean, uh, you know, there was this uh, commentary embedded throughout, again, right? Like the things that you're not going to see at the, uh, at the headline. I I'm looking at the comment right here. I thought it was really interesting. A few firms noted that they're reevaluating their employment level and may be ready for some attrition to reduce staff size. And comments like that are embedded throughout the beige book. Now, again, I want to be clear. You're not going to wake up one day and everything is going to be sort of different. I'm just simply saying you got to look at these things for sort of, you know, signs or how things are starting to shift. Um, and and I, I would submit to you that 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 is happening. So you know what it means for markets, Tom, and you're right to pick up on the ECI. The reason people care is because Chairman Powell told us he cares. This is about the reaction function of the Fed. So let's work That's through right. it together. How do you anticipate this data will develop? There will be a mechanical peak developing in CPI in America, we may have already seen that peak. Tom, how do yes. you think this Federal Reserve will internalize that data and react to it as it peaks and you start to see this slow deceleration that I assume that you anticipate through the summer? Yeah, Jonathan. So I think that this is the question that, you know, we just wrote about this the other day. And I think this is the thing that, uh, you know, the Fed is going to need to sort of <clears throat> um, quantify to some extent. Think about last year. Think about what they did last year. Last year was basically all about getting to max employment, right? Like, you know, forget about inflation. Um, it was it was all I, it was a you know a beeline to getting to max employment. Well, we see how that worked out, right? When you have your blinders on and you're only focused on the, a single side of the mandate. So the question today is: Are they only going to focus on getting back to target inflation? Because I'll tell you, if that's true, look, you're speaking to someone, and I, and I think you all know this. You're speaking to someone who actually thinks that inflation will slow down as the as the year progresses. But if if it's a if this is a march to target then you're going to blow through Bullard's 350. I mean, you're not going to get to Target until well into next year um, from, a, from a core perspective. Um, so I think the Fed needs to define what they sort of would, will feel comfortable with from an inflation perspective, because if it's, if it's, if it's Target, then you're going to be meaningfully higher than, than neutral and you're going to cause a recession. So where do you think that they should be OK or comfortable with inflation coming down to? 
Yeah, Lisa, I, I think that it's it really is about the movement of inflation, right? Like if if by the end of the year you're holding a free handle on core inflation, core inflation, um, I, I would I would define that as actually feeling like you're in a good spot, right? It's it's about the movement and where we are going. It's about the narrative in place at the time. It's really easy today to say, hey, inflation can be at eighty at eight percent, um, because that's all people see is eight percent inflation. But I think as the year progresses, I think the the sort of the, the tone on that will be very different. I think as, as the year progresses, the tone on spending will be very different. I mean, we've talked about this quite a bit. If you look at the um, the, uh, the the lower end consumer at the fourth and fifth income quintiles, they're tapped out. They don't have the ability to overspend, overspend, which is what happened last year. And the data are pretty clear on that. You know, I think it's interesting. I was listening to um, you guys earlier, and I think Tom was was completely spot on. I think that the most recent, I think that yesterday's GDP number, I think that's fascinating. I, I think that that is a really interesting report. It has nothing to do with the negative. It's nothing to do with the fact that the consumer held in. I think it has everything to do with trade and inventories. Um, and when and, and this is again feeds into our story uh, so so nicely. I think it's really interesting that the inventory build has been staggering over the last couple of quarters. Absolutely staggering. And yes, it's subtracted from growth. Uh, uh, yesterday, but only before, uh, you know, be, be because of the way is the delta, right? It's just because it, the build was less than what we saw last quarter. But the last two quarters, we have seen an absolutely enormous amount of build. Think about that in the context of the other thing that's subtracted from growth. That was trade. We're importing. We've imported almost the, the, the <coughs> annual run rate is 18 percent, 18 percent over the last two quarters. This is amazing. Well, Tom, and so what's happening is so sorry. Let me just finish this point. So what's happening is we're building all of this inventory in at, at the same time that the consumer is transitioning from good spending to services spending. Um, what do you think is going to happen to goods prices in that context? Goods prices are going to fall, and I think they could fall pretty sharply. Just real quickly, we only have about 45 seconds left. It's no problem. I know that your view is that the Fed shouldn't go too quickly and force a recession. What would you have to see in the data that would make you change your mind about the momentum that the Fed has to curtail? So, so Lisa, if 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 we're wrong, if inflation remains elevated, then yes, of course, the Fed, then the Fed should engineer a recession, right? They they basically should just get aggressive and knock this thing out. Um, but but again, I think well, I've said this many times on your program. I just think a little bit of sort of patience and 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 a little bit of sort of look making sure you're sort of noting both sides of the mandate. I think that will get you to a pretty reasonable place. You know, we don't have to generate a recession. I don't think we'll have to generate a recession if inflation slows down. But if it doesn't, then yes, I think the Fed will necessarily have to get aggressive. Tom, do you think the pivot was more to do with securing a second term and not the ECI then? Just a final question from me. Uh, you know, you know, Jonathan, I. I I don't think so. I mean, I don't. I don't pretend to know Jay Powell in in any meaningful way. I, I, I but I don't think that's that what was driving his thought process. Just inquiring minds want to know, Tom, what you thought. Yeah. So, thank you, sir. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. You Tom Forcelli of RBC Capital Markets. You thank you very conspiracy much. Conspiracy theories. Jay. Just checking in, Tom. Just having a word. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Ellen Wald is definitive at the Atlantic Council as a senior fellow in her wonderful book, Saudi Inc., on the culture, the fabric of the royal family in Saudi Arabia. And today we're all embargo with Ellen Wald. Ellen, it's real simple. Can an embargo work on oil against Russia? I don't think that in, in this case, an embargo really can work on oil against Russia because uh, there are, first of all, so many different points that Russia is able to uh, to to export oil. We've got pipelines. We've got multiple ports. Uh, in fact, we've got ports and uh, and pipeline systems that they share with other countries like Kazakhstan. And that would be very, very hard to police. Uh, so I think that what we're really talking about here is um, Europe is kind of embargoing itself against uh, Russian oil. And that oil will go to other sources. In fact, we just got news that um, Indian uh, oil companies, Indian refineries are looking to set uh, and to secure some longish uh, term contracts with Russia to import Russian right. oil. And there really isn't any way that, you know, short of, of some kind of military embargo that the EU and, and the United States can stop that from happening. So then does Europe go after India? Well, they can definitely exert pressure on India, but India is is a huge country with an absolutely huge population that has no domestic oil production. So they have to import all of their oil. Their oil consumption is growing. Their population is growing. They're looking to really, uh, you know, to, to develop their country. And to do that, they need access to fossil fuels like oil. And they're not going to just uh, bow down to what Europe wants because of some you know conflict that Europe is in with Russia they were we were able to get them on board with the embargo against Iran with the Iran oil sanctions but Russia is a whole nother ball game meanwhile we're talking about the issues with Russian oil and perhaps a lack of willingness to dramatically ramp up production here in the US we got Chevron earnings we got Exxon earnings and uh, both are still uh, under investing relative to where they were over the recent past Exxon in particular I'm looking at 3.4 billion dollar charge off for Russia. What do you think of that number? Well, that's, that's a pretty big, big number. And it's it's interesting to see how they uh, these companies are taking uh, significant write downs for uh, getting out of their uh, assets in Russia. And yet, you know, we're still seeing huge profits and huge earnings from these companies. And one would expect that we'd see a lot of that maybe reinvested into uh, into upstream or downstream development. But uh, I think that we're, we're seeing in, instead of seeing that we're seeing uh, a significant amounts of money being put towards share buybacks to lift the share price, which I think is something that, um, you know, long term and, and long time investors in the 
these big oil companies have really been looking forward to because they've been on such a downward trend for for many years. Uh, And so now with high oil prices, they're looking forward to seeing their share prices uh, go up. And one of the other issues with uh, increasing oil production in the U.S. is really the, the bottlenecks, the supply chain issues, and the regulatory regime that's making it very difficult and costly uh, to ramp up production in a uh, in a hasty way. Well, but Ellen, to that point, I mean, Exxon tripled their share buyback to $30 billion. They did not boost their dividend, although they are expected to later in the year. Ellen, how much does this make business sense for them? That frankly, it does not in their economic interest to boost production due to the boom and bust nature of the oil market? Or is this something where they just see it as no advantage because of some of the kinks in the supply chains now, but longer term would also make business sense? I think that you can make an argument that it would be uh, that they could increase their revenue if they did increase production because uh, increasing production is not going to bring oil prices down that much at this point because uh, in particular there being uh, these other factors geopolitical factors are what's causing oil prices to rise. WTI is up at you know one hundred and six dollars a barrel just on news that Germany says it won't oppose an oil embargo, an EU oil embargo against. Russia. And that's not something that any number of increase in barrels per day production from the U.S. can combat. So they definitely could make more money. But if you're looking at the long-term picture, then yes, it does make sense not to shell out a lot of money in a very hasty way to try to increase production that you might not really be able to because of all of these other factors. And instead, it does make sense to, say, pay down debt, to uh, increase your dividend, to do these these share buybacks, these companies will probably be in a very good position uh, going forward. But, uh, you know, from the perspective of the consumer, it certainly is. It certainly looks like they're taking advantage of the situation. Ellen Walt of the Atlantic Council. Ellen, thank you. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward client ready resources from clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's dive into this right now. We're not going to do price target. We're not going to do buy, hold, sell. We're going to talk to Brent Thill. And what you need to know is it was major global Wall Street headlines the day he launched from UBS over to Jeffries. And Mr. Thill joins us uh, this morning. Brent, I want to talk about Silicon Valley arrogance. You are really, really good at this. How do you feel about the Bezos Jassy feeling that we're only in this for our consumers? We're not going to harm our consumers. The inflation is something we're going to deal with separate. Are they forgetting their shareholders because they're thinking only of the consumers and they need to input inflation fighting price increases right now? 
I think they protected us in the pandemic. I mean, if you think about what happened, you know, they went from 20% growth to 40% growth overnight, and you can't automate a, a delivery of toothpaste via a drone and some software. Right. And so they had to build this capacity out. And then all of a sudden, we're back to normal. We're starting to go back from from clicks, you know, into bricks, right? We're, we're wandering into Target and Walmarts and in convenience stores on, on our local blocks to pick up goods. We're, mm. we're, we're walking back into, into, you know, physical stores, the world's returning to normal and they can't just automatically snap their fingers right. and, and go back to normal. So very, so cr- it's going to take time to unwind uh, this. And they've said they have overcapacity now and so, it just takes, it takes time. So I want to buy, hold or sell into one year out or two years out or three years out. Did you find a confidence on the call yesterday that they can manage out from this pandemic to a good outcome of growth on the income statement? Well, I think they've been great, uh, you know, sources of value for shareholders over time. So I think the the answer right now for tech is all of tech's in the penalty box. We're seeing a massive uh, downswing post-pandemic hangover. Multiples have come from Uh, living with the aliens, as we call it, back to planet Earth. And we have a potential recession that we're all staring at in in the next year. So right now, every asset class is under duress. And I think it's not only Amazon, it's the rest of tech. And so I think that over a a one to two year period, the answer is yes, it's a great investment. If you start to look at now the recurring software and ad business, you know, these two businesses, um, could potentially account for Amazon's entire market cap uh, on this on this pullback when you look at a few years out and start to put some multiples on the sum of the parts. Uh, and Amazon's AWS business is is only getting stronger. So I think you have to separate the business between the software and ad business and the retail business. The retail business is in is in a tailspin in the short term uh, with a decline in in actual demand. As well as costs that are they're having you know to get a hold of, so yeah, price increases have to come in. But I, again, this just takes some time on the retail side. I think okay. most of our investors are are looking at that, are looking at the other part of the business and some of the parts, and really looking at the AWS and ad business. Brent, I'm looking right now at your price target of 3,700, and you've got a buy rating on Amazon. Shares currently 28.91. What do you think? Or that was where they were at the close yesterday. They're down a lot lower than that uh, now in pre-market trading. What makes you think that they can get to that 3,700? Is this entirely a bet on AWS stripping out the entire uh, commerce business? Well, there's a sum of the parts when you take uh, effectively the, the six big parts of the business and you, you, you strip them down and look at what multiple do you pay. If Amazon was a standalone company, if you look at 2023, you know, this company's going to do the division of AWS is going to do 100 million in revenue plus. And most investors would pay, you know, eight to nine times for revenue. You know, that mm-hmm. in itself is worth. In 900 billion just for that business. So, you know, you, you take the decline in the stock, you start to add the ad business, you start, you well, add part of the media business, and you, you subtract the retail business, and investors aren't okay, paying the Okay, this is multiple. critical. You, you've mentioned this twice now, Brett. We're going to end the interview here, and I need to get this in. It's too important. Are you telling me in an acquisition of Amazon shares this morning that I'm getting the cardboard box business for nothing? 
you're not getting it for nothing, but you're getting it for a multiple, depending where it opens, and, and, and really not a huge multiple. And you're getting a free call option over time that that can come back and stabilize. So I, I think, again, uh, you have to look at it from, from the sum of the parts, not from just the retail business. And I think that's what everyone's doing. So we're trying to think of it a little more thoughtfully uh, over a period of time. And I'm telling you, when you have 60% market share of the big three in the cloud against Microsoft and Google, I'm not worried about uh, their high sources of profitability. Uh, this is a 30 to 40% margin business over time that no company is going to leave once they go to on AWS. But so just quickly, conviction. I wanted to squeeze this in if I may. Your view seems to be the view on the south side right now. 57 buys, one hold, one sell. The market seems to be interpreting things differently. When you have the conversations with the buy side and you talk about what's happening with this name, what's the pushback you're getting, Brent? Pushback right now is no one wants to buy anything in tech. So it's not just Amazon. Go pull up a chart on on Microsoft, go pull up a chart on Google, pull up a chart on anything. We are in a buyer strike across Wall Street on, on software. Brent Phil, awesome to catch up of Jefferies. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.